So, Joe, uh, we've got the DeLorean outside. <laughs> oh, great. Are you, are you ready to go back in time? So what the idea here um, is that we, Joe and I being big fans of nostalgia, right? Is that is that fair to say? I uh, I got on the Stranger Things thing pretty oh, quickly. Oh, yeah. Right? I really got into it. it. Which is funny. I didn't grow up in the 80s, no. like being a fan of all this stuff, like E.T. I found that stuff later. But yeah. somehow I'm nostalgic for a time I didn't really spend much time in. I think I'm just nostalgic for good eight-episode TV. Yeah, you know true. what I mean? Um, but you and I love talking about hockey in the past. We love talking about hockey history. Hockey yeah. history. We love talking all hockey. But there's something about the hockey that you grew up with that holds a really, really special place. So what we've decided to do is once a week, hopefully, spend an episode looking back at a past season that for whatever reason holds some cultural significance today yeah yeah and and not every season i mean uh it's the 100th season of the nhl coming up so it's a good time to uh take a few opportunities that are retrospective so uh thankfully we won't be doing every single year because we don't need to do that but yeah a few years that stood out a few years that maybe had significant significance for us personally right or for the league and uh ideally we'd, we'd like to have some uh guests come in whether it's someone who wrote a book on a topic during a season uh, or a player, a coach, maybe a media personality who remembers that year in particular. Or if you were just, if you spent the entire season in front of a TV yes, and, and want to share your vivid memories of, of watching that season. And it's, it's funny when you look back, maybe at, let's say like a 2012, you can kind of connect the dots between hockey now and, and hockey then, but you know, you don't, but then you really don't have to go back that far to see, wow, the game has mm-hmm. changed a lot. And the NHL has really changed a lot. And, and with that in mind, we've decided to start with a variety of reasons represents a very 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 different nhl than the nhl we know today yeah yeah it's very symbolic of i mean we we talk in those terms now of post lockout nhl and and when we say post lockout of course there was a 2012-13 lockout Mm -hmm. uh but the big one uh, and of course there was 94-95 as well uh which relates to the 2004-05 lockout but 2003-04 is the last gasp of pre-lockout NHL and just to take a step back for a second I think the reason why ultimately we wanted to to do something like this and why I'm so interested in it is that I grew up on things like Rock'em Sock'em Mm -hmm. Uh, I grew up in Toronto watching a VHS called The Passion Returns about the 92-93 Leafs I almost came to expect there to be these diaries that would explain the story of a whole NHL season and it seems uh uh, maybe a bit redundant if you're following along with the season, but as a as a kid, mm. I didn't stay up late for late games. Uh, I didn't watch a ton of games. I mean, I'm seven, eight, nine years old. 
I got other things to do than sit and watch a lot of hockey games. So yeah. for me, it was a great way of not not remembering because I didn't remember, but knowing what happened. What did I miss? Uh, especially when you don't have Game Center back then. I'm not watching Vancouver Canucks games or LA Kings games. I get to see what happened around the league. And now I think it's flipped. Now we have we are possibly overexposed to right. every single thing that goes on. But because of that, I think we lose track of the story of the season from beginning to end and how enjoyable that is and, and how it's nice to contextualize everything. Remember that season where there were the mumps? Mm. It seemed like it was the most pervasive story and it was going to last all year and is, is the Stanley Cup going to be decided by the team that has the least mumps? Right. But then that story disappeared and the season went on and you almost forgot that the mumps were there. It'd be great if there was some diary, some uh, some text out there, something. That well, I used created. to get those big yearbooks. I'm talking those like oh, three, yeah. four hundred page, thick yearbooks. That now, I, like the stats or whatever. Yeah, or, it was yeah. pretty stats heavy. I, I was a big stats guy. Goals and assists were very big for me. <laughs> but like you know, you you're right. You look at at the past season and what you essentially do. You, you you're surprised by nearly everything. Just before we started recording. You know, we were looking back at some of the top scores, and I assure you, we've done more research than just that. But we were surprised, <laughs> at, you know, at that. So, what we want to do first is kind of take you back to 2003, 2004. Um, Facebook launched hey. in February. Yep. When did you get on Facebook? I uh, I believe it was 2004. So I was. Wow. Ent- yeah, I was. It was probably the summer before I entered university. What, were you allowed to? I thought you had to be in university to get on Facebook at yeah, the time. Yeah, and maybe I was showed it, and then I joined it once I joined university. Okay. Um, my my re- my first memory of reaction to it is very simple. Someone showed it to me. I thought, what's the point of that? Why would I ever yeah. do that? And, and then the, the second reaction was, oh, I can meet girls who sure. take the same classes that I do. In sure. Class. Sign me up. So why don't we go back a bit? And why? Well, first things first, where were you? 2003 2004 where were you watching hockey i was watching hockey at home i was 17 so i was in grade 12 my last year of high school uh it was a great year for me Mm. um i i met a girl at the beginning of the year uh and we had a relationship for the whole school year so i have tons of great memories from that time uh i think our first date might have been to see kill bill volume one Okay. Uh, so, so that's where I was. I was enjoying my last year of high school. I had hockey going on. Right. I had I had theater going on. I used to be in acting, uh, and I I had had a tough grade eleven, but grade twelve was a ton of fun. And uh, it was it was obviously it was a Leaf fan. It was in Toronto, mm-hmm. so I was following the Leafs. They weren't. They they had a bit of a run, and they're remembered for all the veterans they had on the team, and yeah. all the all the uh, you know the future Hall of Famers that were on that team. But I, I never quite was too jazzed about the team. They made it to the second round. Do three oh four team? Yeah, yeah. I, I I knew that they weren't what they were in two thousand two or nineteen ninety nine yeah. or nineteen ninety three. Um, so there was, but but I, it's funny looking back now. They finished fifth overall in the NHL. Well, I mean, even though there were veterans, that was still, I mean, that was the order of the day in 2003-04. You know, if you stacked a team like the Leafs were prone to do with veterans, you could get away with that. Like, you know, speed and and skill weren't things that that every team ascribed to, right? And and, and also, when you talk about the Leafs of 03-04, in comparison to the, the good teams of, you know, the late... 
90s and early 2000s, they didn't have Gary Volk. Yes, that's right. <laughs> like to me, nothing epitomized those teams more <laughs> than Gary Volk. This, this, he had such a, a sharp face, and he had that one overtime goal. And and to me, I remember those days. You you walking around the halls of high school, and everybody just talking about Gary Volk. He became this cult hero, <laughs> and and it was tough for you know your Joe Newendikes and, and Gary Roberts to take on that kind of cult hero status when they had had these great careers before them, right? Yeah. Gary Roberts was more successful with that in Toronto, but because he w- was here a few years longer, mm-hmm. Newendike was just here w- one or two years. Anyway, that's that's where I was, and that's the team I was following at the time. Uh, I wasn't yet into fantasy hockey, mm-hmm. which fantasy hockey for me was, was, a, was a launch pad to discovering more of the league, to spend, oh, yeah. to spend oh, yeah. more time watching other games, other teams, following other players closely in a way that... I th- I thought I was a big hockey fan until then, but uh, up until two thousand three four, I was still mostly just watching the Leafs and and you know not enjoying you know seeing other teams advance in the playoffs and not watching as many playoff games as I do now uh, because of because of the grudge factor you know. Like- so going back, so going back and looking at the o three o four season, this is this is good for someone like you. You kind of realize maybe what you were missing. Exactly, and that's kind of what we're trying to do here. Is 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 for our listeners to kind of allow them to take a look back uh, as well. Well, and just to give you a sneak peek, and maybe we can give them a glimpse of what we're about to talk about. This was a heavy ass year. There was, I mean, not just the lockout. Mm-hmm. There were three major off ice events, in, or uh, two, two off ice half. events, two and a half, one on ice event. Yeah, uh, that shocked. The hockey world mm-hmm. uh, that turned it on turned it on its head. Yeah, uh, in some ways, uh, recoverably from where it had been. Um, and you've got a story about that. Uh, yeah, the lockout thing happening, um, and yeah, it was. I think the story also was just that it, we're still in the trap era. Goal scoring yeah. was down. Uh, the record for shutouts was set by goaltenders. Uh, the, the scoring is actually. Uh, similar to what it is now. I think there were only two teams this year in 2003-04 that had a goals four per game of over three. Everyone else is below three goals a game. So this is where we're at. But yeah, in terms of stuff that's happening in and around the game, this was a heavy, heavy year. A lot of a lot of uh, difficult topics to swallow for hockey fans, uh, a real reality check. And uh, of course, the lockout is this cloud that's hovering over the league for the whole season yeah and i think it, it there there was definitely the sense of impending doom and like you said there was this weird there was a few events that in a, in a weird way just foreshadowed uh, kind of the end of of hockey and in a weird way for for guys and girls and everybody our age the end of the innocence in a way too because if you came of age during this time and and you were following hockey you inevitably realized that hockey was a a business and in a lot of ways it was a big bad business you know there was um what i remember about this season uh, very clearly is that um one of one of and maybe sorry maybe it was the the october after one of my very good buddies who i lived with at university at the time he dressed up as the NHL Players Union for Halloween. <laughs> he, um, he literally just bought a shirt and stapled Monopoly money to his shirt. Um, and, and I hope I'm getting that right. You know who you are. I hope it, he didn't dress up as the, the owners. But well, see, that, that makes a little bit sense, though, right? Because this is the, 
um, I think we're still in the era of how could highly paid athletes demand even more money? Right. That was the I think a, a popular perspective. Whereas since then, I think it's been a, it's been turned a little bit, and now the ire is directed a little bit more at the owners from the general population. Back then, I think we were still kind of miffed that uh, that the players were asking for more money a little bit, right? I think so too. But I think I remember reading that um, you know the general polls at the time put public uh, opinion slightly in favor of the owners mm. um, and I do remember I, 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 I want to say it was Wade Redden but I can't be sure I want to remember or I remember a prominent NHL defenseman standing up before the season and saying we will never accept a salary cap and you yeah. you know uh, obviously we know how that ended um, but we, we should get on to some of the big events yeah, because um, the, the lockout, the lockout could be a whole other episode, right? And right, and that's technically the 0405 uh, uh, season, um, but but it's it's uh, there's no avoiding it. Like it, yeah. it is, it is uh, something that is uh, tethered to this season, uh, whether you like it or not. Here's another quote from Brian McCabe at the time saying, "Bottom line, if they want a hard cap, we'll sit out the rest of our lives." That's I what he said. maybe it was. I mean, I yeah, big defenseman. I maybe it was. Brian McCabe. I, I got to find that Wayne Wade Redden quote, but we should start with um, a big off ice incident that that went down before uh, the season even began, and that was uh, September 29th, two thousand three. The Danny Heatley, uh, Dan Snyder car crash. Um, just to update anyone that that for some reason you know is not familiar. Uh, Heatley's driving a Ferrari and he's with the Atlanta Thrashers at the time. He's played all of two seasons in the NHL um, and is quickly on the up and up. Scores 26 goals in his rookie season, 41 in 77 games in his second season. So he had just broken out in a big way. Yeah, 89 points. Yeah, and so he's driving... Um, you know, well over the speed limit, uh, loses control and uh, smashes into a fence. Uh, a few days later, Dan Snyder, teammate, died from his injuries and Healy was charged with vehicular homicide. Uh, he pleads guilty to a second degree vehicular homicide um, and a number of other charges and he's sentenced to three years probation. Um, like you said, Heatley was on the up and up and one thing that we were talking about before we started recording is how when you look at the top scores in 2003, 2004, there's a noticeable absence of star power. So just for reference, we'll say we'll tell you that Martin St. Louis won the scoring race with 94 points. Mm -hmm. uh, he never gets enough credit. But yes, he's, he's not exactly that, uh, you know, gold standard superstar that the league can put his face on a banner and, and sell the NHL. Uh, number two is... Ilya Kovalchuk, you have Joe Sakic, Marcus Nasland, Marion Hosa. And here's where we really get into it. Patrick Eliash, Daniel Alfredson, Corey Stillman at number eight with 80 points, Brad Richards behind him with 79 points, and Robert Lang of both the Washington Capitals and Detroit Red Wings that season rounds out the top 10 goal scoring. So you could say... Nothing against Stillman and Lang, but no. these are not players that the NHL can... 
you know can hang its hat on yeah yeah they 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 can't market these players um to a mass audience and increase the reach of the game which let's not forget in 0304 they still really really wanted to do oh yeah this was the last season where there was no shootout the nhl was not ties there were ties this was not a you know this was not a league that was driven by star power so danny heatley perhaps was the kind of player that the NHL could have turned, especially playing in Atlanta, playing in a market where they so desperately wanted to to kind of break into and so, really get it like a stronghold in. Sorry. So, yeah. you know, he was a player that, you know, could have become a star. And hey, let's not face or let's not forget he was on the cover or he was supposed to be on the cover of, of you know, EA Sports uh, NHL 2004. He was on the cover. I he had was, a copy. So you do have a copy because yeah. I was looking into it and there's some copies with Joe Sackick. He That's was right. removed from some copies. Yeah, but you have a Danny Heatley copy. That's my touchstone to the moment, like uh, outside of, of course, knowing the facts of the story. Uh, again, I would have been about 17. And uh, yes, I recall getting the this copy of EA Sports NHL 2004. Danny Heatley is definitely on it. So, yes, for the purpose of the NHL trying to sell the game based on someone like Heatley, he was right in their wheelhouse. He he, he was a guy who would have uh, been one of the flashiest players at the time. A great shot. Not a ton of speed, but that wasn't the, the style at the time, uh, necessarily. That wasn't necessarily what you needed to be a top-tier goal scorer, and he'd had 41 goals. But, yeah, so he comes Joe back. Sackick is re- replaces him on the, yeah. uh, on the cover. Yeah classic you know burnaby joe but you know uh healy sustained injuries from the crash never mind the the public backlash snyder's parents eventually forgave him and and asked you know the thrashers fans and asked the entire thrashers community to forgive him and and in some part uh they did but there was a you know definitely a cloud hanging over heatley through his he played 31 games uh that season Scored 13 goals, um, again, still recovering from injuries. Mm-hmm. He bounces back uh, after the lockout, has two back-to-back 50-goal seasons. They're his best seasons in the NHL. Sure. Yeah. To me, um, I, I was you know, fortunate last year. I drove down to Binghamton to talk to Heatley. I drove five hours for a five-minute interview. <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to, to figure out this was, you know, he had been sent down to the AHL. He was with the Ducks at the time, right? Yeah, so yeah. he was in the Ducks organization, and, and he's down playing in the AHL, and so I was doing a, a story on him, and I talked to a number of people that had played with him. Um, and, and the general consensus was how could that, um, how could that accident not you know, be held over him for the rest of his career? Um, this was also, uh, and, and we're going to talk about a number of stories, but for me, this was, you know, this was athletes gone wrong or, or, or this was this was me getting an up close look at how young athletes with a buttload of money are still just young people yeah you know yeah. so and so, and we'll learn later on in the season too how a young nhl player's life can be completely turned around and changed forever based off of uh, something that happens in a fraction of a second. One thing we want to do throughout these kind of episodes is a lot of what ifs. So I want to lay some numbers on you. Okay. From the 0102 season to the 1011 season. So that's you know we take out Ten the lockout. Span, yeah. That's but that's eight seasons. Oh eight, yeah, yep. Heatley scores 325 goals in 669 seasons. 
Like I said, there's the lost 0405 season, but that's eight seasons, and he scored goals roughly eight forty percent of the games he played. Okay, admittedly, kind of a smallish sample size, mm-hmm. but that's a goals per game average that puts him in the top thirty of the NHL all time. And those 669 games are more than many players on that list. So if, again, impossible to turn back time, but if that doesn't happen, is Danny Heatley, given that everything he went through and then how he scored, he had his 250 goal seasons, you know, a 48% goals per game average is great. Yeah. Even through those eight seasons, he trailed off a bit. Is Danley Heatley, without that accident, maybe one of the greatest goal scorers of our generation? Yeah, you could you could talk about the the generation thing. I think no problem. Mm-hmm. I think uh, where the where the caveats come in is is you know this this obviously shook him, and even though he had two back to back fifty goal seasons after this, two seasons in mm-hmm. a row of hundred plus points. Uh, you got the understanding that he was. I think he was already a bit of a shy guy. Maybe he, maybe cocky about he, his abilities, but but shy in the dressing room. What he did when I spoke to him, he that was his quote. He says, "I was never a rah rah guy in the dressing right, room." Right, and maybe you know, and he had to have been even more reserved after that happened. Right, you know, uh, so yeah, you, you wonder what kind of wind is taken out of someone's sails at that point. But it's it's. Uh, but the fact that he has his two best seasons immediately after uh, kind of, I guess, goes in the face of, of that theory a, a little bit. But I still think that, um, you know, maybe he uh, is, is dealing with some, uh, some tough times thinking about what's, what's happened that in the, with that accident. But, mm-hmm. And maybe you carry that with you. But I think the issue with him is always going to be foot speed. Yep. And you know, there's, there's, a, you know, what if, what if Danny Heatley had, you know, put more time into conditioning? Mm-hmm. Would he have transitioned better into the post lockout NHL? Uh, no two line or two line passes are allowed. Yeah, uh, the game is faster. Uh, there's obstruction calls being called, especially in that 05-06 season. Well, that's the other thing about this 03-04 season is, is you know, when we look at the, the, you know, the top goal scores, you're not seeing a lot of speed and skill. And these are the, the key words that we talk about in today's NHL. Back then, and this might have been one of the last years, where it was possible to be a one-dimensional player and be really a, a very popular, well-regarded player for just having, in Heatley's case, an incredible shot, maybe the best mm-hmm. in the league. Mm-hmm. You know, you maybe didn't have to be that necessarily well-rounded player. Um, and, and, and we see that moving forward. You know, we see how the game quickly evolved. Um, if we look at the season as a whole, if we step back, once the season gets underway, um, it's the 87th regular season. Up top, we have the Detroit Red Wings as the President's Trophy winners. And you mentioned that they their leading scorer had only 68 points. So the top team in the NHL with 109 total points at the end of the season, their leading scorer, Pavel Datsuk, scores 68 points. So just to give you an idea of what kind of offense was going on, as I mentioned, the uh, goaltender set the league record at this time for 100 for shutouts in a season with 192 combined shutouts. Now, do you remember, this was the big issue at the time. There's not enough goal scoring in the NHL, right? This was the, the, the big topic of the day was that you can't attract 
you know, a, your, a Joe Q public with these 2-1 games, right? Or, or, or one-zip games or whatever, all these shutouts. Mm-hmm. You, as a, you know, as a, as a fan at that point, was low, did low scoring bother you? Uh, did it bother me? Because it was an incredibly low scoring yeah. season and might have been one of the last, you know, real low scoring seasons. You know, it, it's it's hard to it's hard to really recall it bothering me because again, at the time, um, I'm a fan, mm-hmm. uh, so I'm 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 really again thinking of this in terms of how it affects the Leafs. I remember uh, in the years leading up to this season uh, that Curtis Joseph had quite a number of remarkable runs with yep. the Leafs in the playoffs. Uh, one series where he had, and I think Ed Belfort did this in 2003-04, uh, but Curtis Joseph in one playoff series shut out the Ottawa Senators three times. Yeah. That to me was was so exciting and so remarkable and I was so That might be because that. it was the playoffs though. Totally. And I and I am growing up a goalie. Yeah. And I and I'm watching, you know, my hero, you know, shut out the Ottawa Senators in the playoffs. But uh but to to simply say that scoring is low and it's less exciting is is not the case. There's arguments for both sides, mm-hmm. but there were like a, a one nothing playoff game can be totally thrilling, right? Oh, like, I, I I think we'd all love to see like in the playoffs a one nothing game is is kind of again it might not be the thing that NHL execs want to promote, but if I'm watching a one nothing playoff game, I'm not watching two teams you know, playing the trap. I think I'm watching two evenly matched teams. And let me just give you an idea. We talked about the top goal scorers. Here are the uh, uh, top 10 goalies in wins for that season. Mm. And and what, what this list tells me, there's a bit of up and down in terms of, uh, in terms of you know, how popular these guys were overall. Uh, but there's some star power in here for sure. Martin Bruder mm-hmm. leads the league with 38 wins. He wins the Jennings Trophy. Yeah. Uh, and actually... Uh, uh, Corey Schwab told me uh, a fun story that season about how uh, he got. He told you a fun story that season. You no, were doing interviews that, that season, <laughs> season already, Joe. Uh, he went back and and recalled the two thousand three four season as one where Broder was lined up to win the Jennings that year for yep. least goals against, and Schwab was put in one of the final two games of the season, and he was worried, mm-hmm. you know, that he might mess up the record for him because he was very close with. Uh, Philadelphia, I believe, mm-hmm. which was Robert Esch and Rom- Roman Chekmanic, I believe, was their tandem. And they might have won the Jennings, but Broder pulled it out and Schwab was able to get out of that game unscathed. Um, Boy, I just love hearing those names. <laughs> yeah. Roman Chekmanic. Well, I just love hearing those names. Marty Turco, number two in wins. Yep. Thomas Vokun with Nashville. Ed Belfort, Toronto. Jose Theodore coming off uh, MVP season the season prior. Yep. Uh, Dan Cloutier with Vancouver. David Abisher took over that season for Patrick Waugh in Colorado, who had retired the year before. Chris Osgood is in St. Louis. Yeah. He's eighth and wins. Detroit, meanwhile, has, at different times of the year, Dominic Hassett, Curtis Joseph, and Manny Legacy, and Joey McDonald. And they finish in first place with those guys. Yeah. Nabokov's ninth and wins with San Jose and Andrew Raycroft, your Calder Trophy winner. Now, you do want to talk about Andrew Raycroft, but there's a few things we should talk about as well. Um, We'll go through a number of things, but one thing I really want to touch on, and we, we kind of touched on it, it's our requisite Leafs mention. Um, this 0304 team was for a long time the last Leafs playoff team. 
And yeah, if you, until if you're, 2013. Yeah, yeah, and if you're a purist and you don't count the 48 game season, you would say this is the last full season that the Leafs qualified for the playoffs. The names are going to stand out, but it's the ages to me that really, really stand out. The Leafs' top five scores, Matt Sundin, Brian McCabe, Joe Noondike, Gary Roberts, Owen Nolan, a who's who of veritable, you know, classic 90s players. Yeah, if this was 1996, the Leafs won the cup this year. (laughs) But let's go, Matt Sundin, he's 32. Neuendijk, 36. Roberts, 37. Noel, Owen Nolan, 31. And then we get even lower down. Um, McGillney, I, I have to assume it was an injury-plagued season, 34. Robert Reichel in there, 32. They picked up Brian, Brian Leach. Leach, Ron yep. Francis at 35 and 40. And your boy, Ed Belfour, 38 years old. Um, <laughs> is it safe to say veteran leadership was important to I- the Leafs this season? I think that's. Uh, I think it's just a narrative too before the lockout mm-hmm. that I think in Toronto the sense was you had to have a veteran team to win because 1967 is rammed down our throats mm-hmm. and that team was the oldest team in the league. Mm-hmm. Uh, they won with veterans. Uh, the Leafs team in the early 90s was one of the oldest teams in the league. This team must have been one of the oldest teams in the league. You have yeah. an old school guy like Pat Quinn running the team so how much does like i almost wonder if this was again part of this shift that we're talking about whereas now you know you don't say you have to have veterans on the team you you say you have to have a veteran on the team yes yeah. you know what i mean and it's like now for, you're just, for culture yeah you need that veteran voice singular mm-hmm. right so it brooks like right so it's almost as if it's not as important well, you can also, there's no way they would have been able to afford all those guys under the oh. salary cap. That's that's the thing, too, right? You, you can't have that many veterans anymore because they simply cost too much. Right. You know, a guy who isn't producing as much late in his career still demands now 4 or $5 million just because of his name, because mm-hmm. of his experience, his resume. Uh, but you just can't have that many guys on your team. You can add a Brad Richards for a million bucks like mm-hmm. the Blackhawks did if you can get him to agree to that near the end of his career for a chance to win the cup, something like that. But yeah, there's no way Sundin, McCabe, Neuendijk, Roberts, Nolan, etc., are all on this team. Belfour, McGilney, well, all at the same time. Well, I mean, let's come back to it. You're right. I mean, I have to assume that the Leafs um, were a team heavily impacted by the salary cap. You know, again, you would, you, you couldn't even imagine getting this number of veterans in this day and age to come play for the Leafs. No way. And the I Leafs, want to ride out my career in the sunset. And the, the Leafs of 2013 that made the playoffs were the last NHL team to reach the postseason post-lockout. So in other words, they were the last team to adjust mm-hmm. to the new rules, the last team to to figure out how to navigate your team through the salary cap and reach the playoffs, even the Florida Panthers reached the playoffs before Toronto did. Uh, so so that's a distinction that maybe says that, you know, that, that and, and the same could be said about expansion in 67, is and then when the WHA shows up, all these original six teams refuse to change with the times. They rely on veterans. They rely on old school principles. And I think the Leafs did it again in, in 05, 06, uh, not adjusting to the cap, and, and they made mistake after mistake. They, they kept going after veterans. They... They had Sandine until the end of his career, mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, I think 
now we're you know this is the 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 form that the team is taking now is exciting i think to the city uh but it's something that they probably wish happened 10 years ago because uh this is the leafs adjusting Mm -hmm. to the salary cap system only now and they look good doing it Mm -hmm. but they're not and, and we and we'll get to who had terrible seasons this year in 2003 4 who are now blockbuster teams today well why don't we start with the the team that made it to the stanley cup final the year before and then completely bottomed out in 0304 that's the then were they were they the mighty ducks of anaheim or they were they the anaheim mighty ducks back then good question i think they were still the mighty ducks the mike babcock coached 2003-2004 Ducks. Can we just call them the Ducks? Anaheim Mighty Ducks, yeah. According to this, uh, Mike Babcock, head coach, Paul McLean, assistant coach, uh, and Sergei Fedorov is their leading scorer this season. With Dan Bilesma playing 11 games on the right wing. (laughs) There you go. When you look, this was a team that entering the season, um, you know, a lot of people thought they could do some damage, build off the season previous. Uh, Sergei Fedorov, 65 points to lead the team in scoring. Joffrey Lupul, man. Joffrey Lupul Fifth plays team scoring. 75 games this season. Just to give you a sense of how far he's a long spry young this. man, you know? <laughs> he hasn't yet broken in those he's tailor-made jeans. An, he's practically an NHL Iron Man. Right. The amount of games he's playing at this point. But they, you know, and I, I very, I have to assume, young Ilya Brzezgalov playing one game with a goals against average of two. Uh, but we've got Martin Gerber, Jean-Sebastien Jaguar in there. I mean, this is... Jaguar doesn't bounce back well from the previous season. His his stats uh, don't look great after that heroic right. Smythe winning performance in 2003. Rob Niedemeyer only plays 55 games. Um, this was a team that, that entering the season had pretty high hopes. Uh, they definitely disappointed finishing 12th in the Western Conference with only 76 points. Um, you look at some of the other teams that did well. The Canucks had a good year. Oh, yeah. they the, Their whole Marcus Naslin, Todd Bertuzzi situation was working well for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, was this the year of the of the blooper goal against Cloutier? Might have to look that up. But when when Nick Lidstrom right. uh, scores from center ice and turns that playoff series around, we'll get to the Canucks because we yeah, yeah, yeah. there okay. is a big story there. I, I jumped the, uh, <laughs> the gun a little bit. But there, you know what? If if you go through, also of note, really interesting here is the teams that finished at the bottom. Yes, and this is what we should get into because this is sort of the theme of the year, right? Right. It's the lockout and the changing nature of how the NHL works. Finishing fourteenth um, and fifteenth, bottom two spots in the Eastern Conference, the Washington Capitals and the Pittsburgh Penguins. Finishing dead last in the Western Conference, the Chicago Blackhawks. It feels, even though this season is only 13 years ago, it feels strange just saying that. All three of these teams immediately benefited from having very, very high draft picks. Um, You know, the 2004 draft happens. Yep, Marc Andre Fleury, or Marc, sorry, I should say Marc Andre Fleury is drafted 03. in 2003. So 03 is Fleury's rookie season. Right, 04, uh, Alex Ovechkin has taken first overall. And this was a conscious effort from the Capitals. I don't think they had gone into the 03 04 season thinking, right, 
it's over or bust here. I think they were going to make a push. I mean, if you look at this roster, at least in the beginning of the season, yep. um, you know, it, it's... It's capable of, of being a playoff team, and, and they dump a number of these players that are originally on the team. Well, you look at four of their five top scorers were traded. Robert Lang, you know, we, we all know how great a season Robert Lang had traded to Detroit. <laughs> Sergey Gonchar goes to Boston. Yarmer Yager goes to the Rangers. Peter Bondra goes to Ottawa. Um, can, do you think it's possible to have that kind of... Gen, I mean, this is a fire sale of Tobias Bluth proportions here. <laughs> you know, like, I, can you have that kind of fire sale now? And And if so... Would a team really be subject to criticism, you know, of of, of outright tanking? Well, uh, well, they have though, right? I mean, I, right. I, th- I thought the Coyotes and Sabers they got a, they got some flack for uh, for trying to get down to the bottom to draft, you know, Jack Eichel. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Buffalo fans were cheering yeah. when visiting teams were scoring against them near mm-hmm. the end of that season. Uh, that kind of stuff I'm I'm okay with personally. Okay. Uh, I just don't think a team would be able to trade this many players because you have to, now when you make a trade you have to find a match you have to find a perfect match, and I just don't think they would be able to, to uh, a team like the Capitals today would be able to unload a Robert Lang, Gonchar, Yager, mm-hmm. Bondra all in the same season. Well, Mike the Rear. teams wouldn't be able to afford them. Right. You know. And Michael and Nylander is on these capitals, by the way. How do like the, the 2003 draft is talked about as as one of the greatest drafts in recent memory? Um, I mean, just if if you go through this draft, it's you know it's incredible. Mark Andre Fleury goes first overall, uh, Eric Stahl second, Nathan Horton third, and then you go down the list: Thomas Vanek, Milan Mihalik, Ryan Suter, Dion Phaneuf, Jeff Carter, Dustin Brown, Brent Seabrook, Zach Parise, Ryan Getzlaff, Brent Burns. Ryan Kessler, Mike Richards, Corey Perry, all taken in the first round. Um, who made an impact from that 03, 03, well, 03 draft? I know, th- so Flurry played this year. Yes, and a number of those guys played their first games. Uh, just pulling up the old Wikipedia uh, Tribune here. Uh, some of the players that debuted. The Tribune, you got a scoop, see? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Where every journalist should live. Yep. Uh, yeah, some of the players who debuted from the list that we just mentioned and otherwise, uh, Patrice Bergeron, Eric Stahl, uh, Dustin Brown, Brent Burns, Marc-Andre Fleury, all these guys have their first taste of the NHL this season, but mm-hmm. it's the aforementioned Andrew Raycroft who wins the Calder Trophy. And I, and I make such a point of this because it's it's a it's a self-deprecating joke against Leafs fans, you know, the, the Andrew Raycroft trade and all that. But, you know, it, it's it's very reminiscent to me of earlier in the 90s when a gentleman by the name of Jim Carrey all of a sudden became a superstar goaltender in the NHL. Mm-hmm. He wins the Calder and Vesna in his rookie season. Washington Capitals. And what happened after that, right? Right. And, and I just think... It's it's a it's a story to highlight, and it's funny, especially for Leaf fans, and maybe more heartbreaking than funny. Yeah, I don't know. If funny is the word, <laughs> but um, but I don't think that this is actually that uncommon, right? I think you know when we see a goalie, you know, plow through the league and have just the season of his life, right? And then we're projecting the next season. How is this guy going to do? And all the predictions say 
this guy is going to take off and be the next whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, goaltending, especially earlier, early in one's career, is almost impossible to still detect. And well, this uh, this yeah. raises a question. I mean, so we can look at Steve Mason, who was also, yes. you know, Calder Trophy winning goaltender. Uh, hasn't exactly panned out. Ask yourself now if an NHL team would do this. You know, if I, I've we've talked a lot about goaltenders, and and I believe that you know, goaltending in the first round of the NHL draft is is really dying. Teams are not keen to take goaltenders, you know, that high overall. And let's say a, you know, it, I think a lot of uh, fans, even you know, semi hardcore fans, would have a tough time identifying who are the big up and coming goalies in the NHL right now. But let's say a goalie emerges and and somehow this season wins the Calder Trophy. Do you do you make a trade for him? Mm. Do you even do you even touch him? Again, it's a very different climate now and I don't think a do lot of trade teams for would... Matt Murray is the question then, right? Uh I think Matt Murray's you mean Matt Murray now or Matt yeah. Murray last before last season? Do you trade for Matt Murray now? Yes. Well, but that's what we're saying, right? Is after one season of a goalie looking impressive, right. do you trade for him? In the playoffs. He looked right. impressive. Exactly. He has um, a cup, though, right? That's right. that's the allure now of Matt yeah. Murray. Matt Murray is that um, is that he has this cachet. Yeah. He has this resume. Do you trade for him? I say no. I mean, right? we don't we don't want to get into this trade, yeah. <laughs> but but he was traded for a prospect. So yeah, fine. You know, at, at that point, you probably kind of have to make that deal. But I really don't know if we want to. You know, <laughs> break down anymore. the Andrew Raycroft but, trade, but, yeah. but you know, you as a goalie and your love of goalies, I mean, how fluky was this? And how, like we said, after this incredible draft, does Raycroft emerge as the Calder Trophy winner? Mm-hmm. I know exactly. Not all of those guys that we listed on the from the O three draft of course. play this season, of course. Uh, so um, yeah, if he had gone up against some of those players in their rookie season, maybe it's different. Uh, yeah, I think it's fluky. I mean, I, I wouldn't take it away from Andrew Raycroft mm. the, what he accomplished that season, but Boston gets booted in the first round by Montreal in the playoffs. Great, see another right. you know seven game uh, incredible Montreal Boston clash yep that i don't think we're going to see anytime soon yep maybe not but uh but you're right like they had a couple of seasons in a row uh it seems they don't go very far without playing each other in playoffs but they had a couple of playoff seasons in a row around this time and uh boston comes in as the second seed and montreal seventh seed yep yeah and and this is a and it just goes to show that i think boston had a good start i think a, a rookie goaltender like that can have his confidence boosted and the playoffs are just a different story. Well, the playoffs are a different story. And if you look at the playoffs in that season, uh, there weren't a ton of upsets in the first round. Uh, I know we love our first round upsets. Uh, there was that one in the Eastern Conference. Over in the West, six seed Calgary uh, takes seven games to beat third seeded Vancouver. Now, Vancouver entering the playoffs, if you want to talk about dark clouds overhead. Yes. They had one that that kind of shook uh, the NHL to its core. And we're, of course, talking about the famed Todd Bertuzzi incident, which happened on the last 
evening of the NHL's regular season. Okay. Yep. So I'm in um, I'm in university second year at the time. Uh, you mean the boys had been out doing whatever you know it is that you do and and we came back uh you know crammed down into the basement and turned on sports center and i distinctly remember james duthie you know kind of looking scared and Mm. talking about how the kind of the this 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 event that had happened that night had changed the nhl and this was a time before you know smartphones and and i guess sports bars i'm not sure where we would before have been twitter at, yeah. before twitter so we didn't know what had happened we we're all kind of on our on the edge of our seat and you, you watch um todd bertuzzi and 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 steve moore and what he did to more um this do you think this effectively just ended any hope for the canucks going into the playoffs i oh yeah yeah i think so even with that, that being, era of the canucks. yeah yeah yeah, and you know, I, I don't, I don't know if they were strong enough to to go against. I mean, Calgary obviously eliminated Detroit that year, and and anytime you you drop the top seed, uh, it's a huge accomplishment. Well, look, and not this is one a Calgary team that made it to the Cup final. Yeah, made it with within one game. And we'll say for Calgary, which we'll get to eventually, they took out the top three seeds in the West to reach the final. Very impressive. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, maybe I, I just I, I don't think that this. Vancouver team had it all. This was most certainly the death knell. Not that not that that is the uh, uh, not that they are the sob story in this situation. Mm. But yeah, I think that's it's an end of an era for Vancouver at that time. Uh, it's the end of Steve Moore's career, mm-hmm. and we're seeing ramifications of that even to this day with his brother Dominic uh, uh, doing uh, his ping pong event every year, raising mm-hmm. money for uh, for charities uh, in response to this is this incident which just wrapped up this past year or last year in, in court or is that still going on um i i don't know i feel like you still hear about it yeah no there, there was uh there was going to be sort of a final decision on that but that was only now and and uh bertuzzi's career doesn't end but it takes a distinct turn mm-hmm. he becomes sort of a journeyman after that and mm-hmm. bounces around never really comes close to producing what he did previously um Matt Cook is involved. Yeah. Um, uh, this is Sean Pronger's last game in the NHL, and he tells a story about that in his book, Journeyman. Um, so was this, like, I, I do kind of look at this as the first event, first on-ice safety event where my eyes kind of opened as a fan and said, oh, this game, you know, something has to change here. This was a dramatic, big Incident and not the kind of everyday thing, admittedly. Yep. But I think this probably opened up a lot of eyes going into the lockout. You know, wow, a, a lot needs to change. But still, we game. needed. Still, we needed uh, Mike Richards hitting. Was it Mark Savard uh, or David Booth? There was a David Booth and Mark Savard hits after You're the. You're talking about Matt Cook. No, uh, yes, Matt Cook. Matt, yes, Matt Cook. Yeah, Mike Richards was involved in an, an elbow as well, but. Anyway, it took those hits still after the Bertuzzi thing to get Rule Forty Eight. Okay, head hits and yeah. blind sides, right? Yeah. But yeah, this was a shocker, and I thought it it revealed the true colors of the NHL to a degree. It re- revealed the true colors of of fandom. I thought too, because not only do you s- you see people taking sides in this event, yeah, with the Todd Bertuzzi thing and and how how to explain it, uh, but you had I think we all had maybe had a bit of an inner struggle too. You're sitting there watching and you watch the replay over and over, and for years 
later watching mm-hmm. the replay over and over and you're trying to as a hockey fan or someone who maybe has played hockey mm-hmm. um to you're trying to make sense of it in your mind uh you want to give todd bertuzzi the benefit of the doubt i mean if we're talking now this moment today yes it's Todd Bertuzzi is completely guilty. He's culpable. Sure. It's it's not enough, though, to say that he's a monster because he's not. But um, but it, it really created this divide. I don't I don't want to I really don't want to misquote him, but I do distinctly remember uh, Ty Domi saying something about this afterwards, saying until, you know, reporters and fans and until you are on the ice and your adrenaline is flowing, you you. Again, I do not want to misquote him, but it was something to the effect of you don't know what it's like and you almost don't know what you are capable yeah, of. Yeah. I think I this was definitely a, a transition point where you are kind of looking at the you know, the big bad eighties and, and, and even the nineties where, you know, it was a much more physical game and you're kind of rectifying this this need to see more goals and and speed because it's a low scoring season and you want to see you you just you you want to see skill be you know be preeminent in the NHL mm-hmm. and then something like this happens of course on the last day of the season it really closes the book on the season and and I wonder if you know if we talk about um public opinion in the lockout where Again, I'm, I, I think it was generally on the side of the owners. I wonder if this Todd Bertuzzi incident weighed into it. Hmm. And the last memory that a lot of fans might have had is say, you know what? I can't watch hockey anymore. Yeah. I, I, I can't dig into this stuff. That and the fact that the Lightning Flames Stanley Cup final is incredibly boring. Right? Um, I, think that, I think that was kind of a turnoff for, or, or it, was, it was part of what, was uh, but part you of the still taste had, left in your mouth. At but the end you of that still season. had a Canadian team in the Cup final. This was part of that run where there was three Canadian teams in the Cup final, right? Ottawa, Calgary, Edmonton, in a yeah, row. If you, yeah, excluding the lockout year. But this yeah. was the first year since Montreal in 93 that a Canadian team was in the final. So I think you probably, and they had the Red Mile back then, and it was like a big, exciting thing. So you brought... You know, you, you you definitely probably brought some some viewers back then, but I gotta say, I think that this was the kind of thing that the Bertuzzi thing was the kind of thing that really probably caused a lot of people in the NHL to look inwards and say, what kind of league are we going to be? And that's why I think out of the lockout, the NHL kind of looked really really strange with the shootout mm-hmm. you know and and with with the salary All the penalties cap. being called six yeah. seven eight penalties a game yeah there. so i i almost think in a weird way it's fitting that the nhl not that this happened that this season ended in an ugly manner it ended with a thud yeah like and and you know we have the world cup uh, going on right now, actually. The first couple of preliminary games are going mm-hmm. on at this moment, but the last World Cup was 2004. It was right after this season. It was uh, September. Uh, and Canada wins. They beat Finland. Vincent LeCalvier, who just won a cup with the Tampa Bay Lightning, and wins the got MVP And got of the in a heck of a, like a, a captain. Ca- we have to. Oh, yeah. We got to talk before we get into and, that. And we're going to have to, we're going to have to rapid fire through some of the stuff because we're already at 50 minutes here. Oh, and, and we have too bad. some stuff. But, um, but yeah, Vincent LeCalvier, Canada wins, LeCalvier MVP. Right. Two days later, 
the lockout is announced. So it's the World Cup is the last gasp of hockey that we see. But yes, it's the Tampa Bay Calgary series. Uh, it's the Bertuzzi thing at the end of the regular season that really hang over uh, the hockey world as we enter the lockout in September of 2004. I don't remember the... And, and I again, I was in university. We had cable, which yeah. you know, I don't have now. Um, I, I, I still don't remember this 04 um, World Cup of Hockey to be a typically life-altering things in terms of being a hockey fan. Like, no. did, it, did it really no. register with I, you? I don't have a ton of memories of it. No. No, for sure not. Um, is that because, and this is something that I'm struggling with now, is that because it took place in September when you're still kind of trying to enjoy your last bits of summer and you're not yet ready to tunker down? Or is it you're still dealing with, like you said, an ugly regular season? Also, the games are spread way out. There were right. some games in Europe. There were games yeah. in the States. There were games in different parts of Canada. Yeah. I don't know if it's a better thing now that all the games are in Toronto, but it certainly, and and without the ability to just watch any game on any channel or have Game Center, this kind of thing like that, I wasn't able to follow every game. Plus, you you're know. coming, you're, you're, 2002, you know, that that Salt Lake yeah, City, that's still fresh. 2002, yeah. And that carried so much more resonance I think. And that's something that I think, you know, if we're bringing it back to today, I think that's something the NHL is really going to have to consider because right now the World Cup is a very, very big deal because we don't know if NHL players are going to uh, Korea yeah. for the 18 Olympics. If they do, I I got to say, I don't think we will. There's something about the Olympics. There's a mystique there that I don't think the World Cup has. And, and we can see that because we can all very quickly talk about where we were when Joe Sackick scores in 2002. Mm-hmm. You would be hard-pressed to find someone that can say, oh, yeah, well, that Vinny LeCavier, great World Cup yeah. in 04. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess that's because it wasn't a regular thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it feels like a one-off. And if we can bring it back, I, I think that's something that the NHL must do, is if you're going to do this, make it a regular thing. Don't do it every four years. Do it every two years. So we can actually see some of these best, some of the best players in the world, well, right? And the whole Olympics thing will have to be worked out, and and then you know our our fans as interested, our players as invested. I mean, look at all the players dropping out with injuries. Mm. Uh, look at all the unsold tickets for mm-hmm. these some of these events. Are players interested enough? Are fans interested enough? Maybe it takes a bit of time to see that uh, develop. Um, yeah, like I said, uh, we we could. We could spend so much time on some of the issues with this season, and it's it's such an interesting time with the league. I think we should try and wrap this up in the next like ten minutes or so. Okay, what maybe, do you got? Maybe we can do some rapid fire stuff. We'll certainly talk about the end of the season with Calgary and, and yep. Tampa. And I've got a humdinger of a John Tortorella story that I want to tell. It's short. Okay, I just wanted to paint this picture of John Tortorella, who wins the Jack Adams Trophy as top coach in the NHL this season. Wow. His team wins what the Stanley cut. Cup. Yeah, and uh, and there's a excellent excellent story about what happens with him and the post game party. Uh, but why don't why don't we do some some rapid fire stuff? Sure. I have to throw this out there. Okay. J- Josh, what do you think about this? This is the first season where we flip back to home jerseys are dark, away jerseys are white. Do you care? Is this a thing? Do you want to see the the league switch back to this? Because I know some people 
are very nostalgic about the time yeah. when the white jersey was the home jersey. Does this matter to you? But this was the season when this was introduced. It it does it does matter to me. Jerseys are important, you know, I, I, and I think it the flip was nothing more. I mean, it's a sales tactic, mm-hmm. you know, but thinking about it now, it, it does seem strange to me to to cheer for a team at home if they're not standing out to you on the ice at home. You know, I'm thinking of a white jersey on the, mm-hmm. on the ice. Um, I think that makes sense. I think I think it makes sense to make uniform the fact that away teams are always this color. Mm-hmm. They're always white, and the home team is the you get you get your literally your true colors mm-hmm. showing. Uh, I could get on board with that. I remember as a kid thinking like that the Leafs white home jersey on the white ice in the Maple Leaf Gardens lighting, which is always a bit brighter, yeah, and Air Canada Center is right. a little bit brighter than yeah, some yeah, of these. Yeah, like yeah. I think of San Jose, it always seems like they're playing like you know under like you know halogen lights, or yeah, something like that. But um, but uh, I, I do have a soft spot for that white jersey at home. But I, I could see it stay the same. It makes sense to me that the home team gets to sort of, you know, you know, show off its its uh, its ostrich plume, you know, to to the fans that you get to put your most colorful and hashtag most- ostrich plume. <laughs> <laughs> I did not write that down prior to this. Um, right. Okay, some some more rapid fire stuff. We could spend a ton of time more on this, but the other major incident of the season right. is Mike Danton, yep. who's arrested for. Uh, essentially hiring someone uh, in an attempted murder situation with uh, with his agent it, yes his his agent. agent who uh, that that whole story I think uh, I think Steve Simmons wrote a book on the Mike Danton story I think and, so. and that whole thing I don't know if you have any memories of that quickly but um, but the San Jose Sharks eliminate the St. Louis Blues in the playoffs Danton this is his first full season in the NHL and I think it's the day after or almost immediately after the Blues are eliminated he's arrested and this whole thing unfolds and players on the team are shocked they had no idea of course and Danton's life his career totally turned around that's it uh, he does come back to play hockey a little bit uh, in the last five years or so he mm-hmm. played a little bit in Europe but he had issues with visas and leagues allowing him to play uh, the whole Mike Danton thing on top of Todd Bertuzzi and Danny Heatley, this was one heavy year. There was a lot of really greasy stuff going on behind the scenes with Danton and Robert Frost, his agent. Um, you know, if, if you're interested in this, there's a lot of stuff out there, including a Fifth Estate documentary. Um, there's there's a lot of questions about, you know, what kind of relationship the two had um, and and look Mike Danton was obviously carrying a lot of um, demons it was uh, a little bit reminiscent not that the subject matter is exactly the same but a little bit reminiscent of, of the Sheldon Kennedy story yeah like, I, I, I was thinking about that as well um, you again to me this is very much um, about and uh, growing up the time that I did this is very much a, a question of loss of, of, of the innocence and yeah. you, you're like you just you stop at the end of the season and you're like you, you like you I think I was raised in a very um, in the kind of environment that, that, that put hockey players NHL players in a different category as your 
you you know every other professional athlete mm -hmm. you know there was there was there was morals involved and these <laughs> were these were good and wholesome people and you and this up, is, you grew up with hockey players on your team and, yeah, you, and, you, and, and in you your just, classrooms and and you knew them you knew they were your family and it just kind of felt yeah it felt like they were a cut above in terms of of morality and then you you realize at the end of the season that that all goes to shit you know that none of that is true and and that's good i think the quicker that you come to that realization about professional athletes the better but fascinating for journalists i would say sure you know oh what a year when stuff like this be... happens i think this is good for sports media to you know uh broaden their perspective uh, to flex their muscles a little bit, yeah, to talk to about something a little bit more uh, yeah. than just the game. Absolutely. Uh, it's it's good because, you know, uh, and that's why I'm interested, I think, in talking about hockey, you know, uh, with an audience is that um, is that it's, it's it can be too much of an echo chamber, mm -hmm. right? With, with, uh, with hockey media, hockey Twitter now, um, anytime you can, you can have a story like this come out, not that you want, you know terrible things to happen to people but when something like you know the like patrick kane and evander mm -hmm. kane incidents of the last couple of years mm -hmm. this these are conversations that are good for sports journalists to have uh it, for good for sports fans to have mm -hmm. because they typically just want to watch their teams play win and lose and to question their morality to question their place in society to yeah. to uh, you know to um uh, to put them in a different category, like you said, to excuse things like violence, to excuse things like fighting and concussions and attitudes towards them, stuff like that. Uh, great conversations to be had. And and uh, speaking of stories, you you have a John Tortorella story that I know you're dying to share. Yes, yes. Uh, let me just let me just throw out a last couple of notes as we wrap up here. Right. Um, it's Joe Thornton's last year in Boston. Uh, it ends unceremoniously, and he goes to San Jose and wins the MVP in 0506. Uh, we, ha we can't we can't do this podcast without mentioning that the great Mark Messier retires. Okay. This is his last season yeah. in the NHL. Um, yeah, just a couple notes. Uh, I figured maybe we'd talk briefly about the Tampa Calgary series. Uh, of course, everyone remembers the Aginla Lecavalier fight, sure, uh, which totally uncommon for for Vinny, but I think. Uh, Jerome uh, uh, knew his way around the uh, the Donnybrook pretty well, but this was a, obviously a memorable fight, captain on captain. Um, but yeah, I, I found I found the series to be like you know, let's say less than palatable. Uh, it was it was defensive. You know, we have Nikolai Habibulin in the Bulin mm -hmm. wall, uh, Mika Kiprasov establishing himself. Um, it, I, I wasn't exactly thrilled. I remember being excited that Calgary had a chance. You know, I think that was a big deal. And of course, they had that controversial non-goal mm. where the puck appeared to cross the line. I liked it in that it was, you know, the narrative was very, very easy. You had the best team in the East, you know, Tampa Bay, with the leading score in the league against kind of like a plucky upstart in the mm -hmm. six-seeded um, Calgary Flames. And that's something that you actually see more and more now. You know, I can, you know, you, you look at uh, the Los Angeles Kings who never really or didn't always enter the playoffs as a, as a very, you know, top ranked mm -hmm. team. But you, you always have one team that comes in, not so much in this last playoffs or last Stanley Cup finals. That was definitely a pick em. But, you know, this one, it seemed like, well, yeah, if Calgary 
is going to do this. They are, you know, they they have to take the kind of the the weight of a nation on their shoulders. Yeah, and, and Edmonton did that in 06. Right, right, right. So you and and I think that became more and more prevalent, but. Not a bad if it's the Le Cavalier Aginla fight that we take away. That's not a that's not a bad takeaway. No, it's a great takeaway. But I think I think it 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 probably paints that series in, in a little bit of a uh, more positive yeah, light than, than than if you were to go back. Sure, I have gone back and watched that game seven and phew, could have slept through it. Really, I will say Ruslan Fedotenko scores two goals, which I think he did with Pittsburgh in the final two. He scored a goal anyway when Pittsburgh won the cup. Uh, I want to get to the uh, uh, John Tortorella story. All right. The last thing I'll say, I can't go without saying my boy Felix Bodvan, my hero growing up. It's his last season. Plays with the Boston Bruins. Enough of that. Um, So Tampa wins in Mm -hmm. Tampa. Game seven. John Tortorella's methods, you know, uh, Vinny LeCalvier is stripped of the captaincy. Right. Dave Anderchuk takes over. Uh, but all of this is is vindicated, um, and I found this this article uh, from NHL.com recently, and it's and it's an old one. It's it's from 2014, and it's about the 10 year reunion, okay, of the Tampa Bay Lightning, and and Tortorella is talking about you know not being nostalgic, but he was happy to uh, get involved. He says. Uh, I've never been uh, involved in something like this. I was a little nervous entering the room. You can imagine his relationships with the players sure. are hot and cold. Uh, but then the night got flowing. The boys had a few beers and started telling stories. One thing that surprised me, I thought I knew what they were going, what they were doing in the evening during the season when they were going out, but really I did not know. They told me some stories and I, and I really did not know. I thought I had a good handle on it. Um, and he starts talking about the reunion. Uh, and he says, Dave Anderchuk and Tim Taylor met me at the door when I got there. It's special. It's hard to explain if you didn't go through it. Um, uh, this hallway and locker room were filled with people that night, and you couldn't even get to one another. So we're now, he's now taking us back to the night of the celebration, Game 7. 2004. 2004. Uh, and I just have to scroll down and find it, so we might need some... Uh, some elevator music for a moment. Um, I, I will. You want elevator oh, here music? We go. Just to take you back in time, 2004 uh, Grammy Award winner <laughs> was, was uh, for top record of the year was Clocks. So if you by Coldplay. So if you want uh, elevator music, just to put you back in time a little. Thank bit. Thank you. Yeah. And, and Lord of the Rings: Return of the King wins Os- wins the Oscar for Best Picture. All right. Um, here's Tortorella talking about the uh, uh, post game. Okay. Uh, all the other coaches, everybody was in the rink here. Upstairs, somewhere in one of the rooms partying. My family had left. I was the only one in the building, and I didn't know what to do, so I just got in my car and left. I went home. It was really weird for me. I walked out, and I said, I guess that's it, and I drove home. My coaches didn't tell me where, where they were going. They all gassed me and went upstairs, and I just drove home by myself. It's true. I was a little angry the next day that I wasn't involved in the party upstairs. I didn't know where they all were. Hmm. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Now, of course, coaches don't always have the best relationships with their team. Right. But he wins the Jack Adams. Not yet at that point, I yeah. guess, anyway. But he's, he's, he's just had this tremendous season. Tampa finishes second overall. Um, he has a rough relationship with Vinny LeCavalier, but they make it through. They win. Mm-hmm. Dave Andercheck, the veteran, leads them. And they somehow leave Tortorella out of the celebration post game. Now, now and hold he has this lonely 
car ride home at the end of the night that and can you imagine winning the stanley cup and and having a moment where you're like i guess that's it and you get in your car and drive home alone now my i i I can't imagine but my my question to torts would have been now you said the party was upstairs in the arena in the arena after the game when you know most of the presumably twenty thousand people have left and Torts can't find the party. <laughs> like I'm not like yes, of course I feel bad for him, but it's when the arena I've I've and you've been in empty arenas, big as they might be, if something is happening on the other side when it's empty, you hear it. And this is a party after you've won game 7. I'm going to assume it's a banger. Now, this is just how he phrases torts, the story, but, right? Yeah, but Torts can't find the party. <laughs> do you think, now if we're going to pick apart Torts' story a bit, do you think he maybe knew there was a party and came to that very cold realization that he wasn't invited? Yeah, like maybe he knows where the room is. Yeah. Um, but he didn't get the invite. Or maybe he's tried to call someone and they don't pick up his phone. Maybe he has a flip phone at the time and, you know, he's, he's definitely not got a texting. He's, he's definitely got a texting, flip phone. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe it's maybe it's you know baloney that that he couldn't find the party, but I I wouldn't put it past him that he felt rejected by his mm. team because when he talks about their ten year reunion, he's talking about how he was not sure how he's going to be received by the players, but right. when Dave Anderchuk greets him at the door, it's a special moment for him. So then, why doesn't Anderchuk like he, he's an Anderchuk's a bit of a, a vet at that point? He knows that yeah. It's somehow I, I I don't know, but I have to assume in some part Torts must have stolen a game or two. Yeah, with his coaching of the sixteen wins, you might have to credit at least one. Yeah, to Torts. Yeah, even if it's just that one. Um, and are the players and the rest of the team aware that Torts is not there? And are they intentionally not inviting him? I I don't know, but the next time. I get on the phone with a member of the 0304 <laughs> yes. Tampa Bay Lightning. That will be one of the first questions I ask. Do I feel bad for Torts is once again making a name for himself, yeah. claiming that um, any American in the World Cup, any American on this roster yep. that uh, protests during the anthem will be benched. Yep. <sighs> Torts. Um, it's, a weird, it's it's a weird and and all this Tortorella stuff is coming back into our purview now. The last few years with the Canucks and the Rangers and 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 uh, maybe I'll just we'll just have some finishing thoughts here. Yep. We've gone long. Um, Tortorella to me, I, I want to put this theory by you and anyone sure. who's listening and has thoughts about this. Please get back to me. But John Tortorella to me, if he was a movie character, hmm. would be Daniel Day Lewis from There Will Be Blood. Mm. Let me explain, let me back up a little bit. Tortorella, of course, wins the Stanley Cup in 04 with Brad Richards right. and, the, and the Tampa Bay Lightning. Richards wins the Conn Smythe. He's his boy. He's watched him grow up. Sure. Uh, Richards and Tortorella back together, New York, the okay. Rangers. Yep. Brad Richards benched by John Tortorella in Game 7 of a playoff series. I forget which one it is at the moment, but... James I, just, Duth- I just shake my head all the time <laughs> with him. But James James Duthie has a uh, breaks down that that season. Yeah. The next summer with him does a sit down interview, yep. and, and this is where I get the the reference to there will be blood because Duthie asks him, "Is your relationship with Brad Richards done?" And he's and he kind of brushes the question off at first. He's like, "Oh, no big deal. It's, you know, this is business of hockey, whatever." 
and he asks him again and he says you know what yeah it was our my relationship with brad richards was affected uh and really you think about it when you when you think about getting to the end of your career all you have left is your relationships and as hard as tortorella is on the outside you see these glimpses of i want to be at that party i want my captain to acknowledge me i don't want to lose my relationship with brad richards and the end of there will be blood if you haven't seen it is is daniel day lewis rejecting his son even though his son is reaching out to him Mm -hmm. and and he just and just the the movie ends in a mess for him right like like he is alone and that is it and and sometimes you get these glimpses of tortorella just being so hard that he drives everyone away but everybody still needs somebody right it's a valiant attempt to make me feel be- like bad for John Tortorella. But if that was the point of this podcast, it's not going to happen. Um, we want to thank everybody out there for listening. Our next Puck Talks. It's coming up. Very, very soon. September 15th. Joe, quickly tell us what you and I will be doing at the next Puck Talks. I'm very excited. Uh, you and I are going to do a live podcast. We're going to be talking with director Kevin Funk, who just is uh, is going to be premiering, world premiere of his movie called Hello Destroyer. Uh, it's about a hockey team and a hockey player uh, that experiences an incident of on-ice violence. And the movie also covers how the team responds to it, the dressing room culture. and uh, How a pro-pro. Exactly. So we're going to be talking with Kevin live uh, for the podcast at the live show. Uh, and as well, we're going to have our Leaf panel. We're going to have guys like Chris Johnson, Greg Wyshynski, Jeff Merrick, Steve Dangle, and more at this show. Um, uh, homestandsports.com is where you can check out the tickets and you can of course always follow us on Puck Talks Live on Twitter uh, thanks for the podcast uh, support so far ratings reviews uh, we've started to see them come in appreciate it uh, but yeah love any response if you guys want to hear any particular seasons uh if you have ones in mind that you want to uh for us to take a look into uh we're heavy into this so we're, we've got a few lined up we're going to continue to do these types of shows while still doing our regular podcasts with guests and following the day's news etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, but yeah josh what are you looking forward to the live show at the live show there's free pizza there's That's free, it. there's there is free pizza it is always a good day with with free wheels. No, uh, I'm looking forward to hopefully doing another one of these, an abridged version on stage. Um, the Puck Talks are always a lot of fun. Check out Homestand Sports uh, for more info. What do you know, Joe? It's stinking hot outside. we got to get out there. Let's go. All right. We've thanks been for here listening. long enough. Yeah, thanks for listening. We'll do this again sometime.